Chapter Two B of John Quincy Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Quincy Adams by John T. Morse. Chapter Two B. Concerning a suggestion that civil war might be preferable to the extension of slavery beyond the Mississippi, Adams said, This is a question between the rights of human nature and the Constitution of the United States. A form of stating the case which leaves no doubt concerning his ideas of the intrinsic right and wrong in the matter. His own notion was that slavery could not be got rid of within the Union, but that the only method would be dissolution after which he trusted that the course of events would in time surely lead to reorganization upon the basis of universal freedom for all. He was not a disunionist in any sense, yet it is evident that his strong tendency and inclination were to regard emancipation as a weight in the scales heavier than the Union if it should ever come to the point of an option between the two. Strangely enough, the notion of a forcible retention of the slave states within the Union does not seem to have been at this time a substantial element of consideration. Mr. Adams acknowledged that there was no way at once of preserving the Union and escaping from the present emergency, save through the door of compromise. He maintained strenuously the power of Congress to prohibit slavery in the territories, and denied that either Congress or a state government could establish slavery as a new institution in any state in which it was not already existing and recognized by law. This agitation of the slavery question made itself felt in a way personally interesting to Mr. Adams by the influence it was exerting upon men's feelings concerning the still pending and dubious treaty with Spain. The South became anxious to lay hands upon the Floridas and upon as far-reaching an area as possible in the direction of Mexico in order to carve it up into more slave states. The North, on the other hand, no longer cared very eagerly for an extension of the Union upon its southern side. Sectional interests were getting to be more considered than national. Mr. Adams could not but recognize that in the great race for the presidency, in which he could hardly help being a competitor, the chief advantage which he seemed to have won when the Senate unanimously ratified the Spanish treaty had almost wholly vanished since that treaty had been repudiated by Spain, and was now no longer desired by a large proportion of his own countrymen. Matters stood thus when the new Spanish envoy, Vives, arrived. Other elements, which there is not space to enumerate here, besides those referred to, now entering newly into the state of affairs, further reduced the improbability of agreement almost to hopelessness. Mr. Adams, despairing of any other solution than a forcible seizure of Florida, to which he had long been far from averse, now visibly relaxed his efforts to meet the Spanish negotiator. Perhaps no other course could have been more effectual in securing success than this obvious indifference to it. In the prevalent condition of public feeling, and of his own sentiments, Mr. Adams easily assumed towards General Vivas a decisive bluntness, not altogether consonant to the habits of diplomacy, and manifested an unchangeable stubbornness which left no room for discussion. His position was simply that Spain might make such a treaty as the United States demanded, or might take the consequence of her refusal. His dogged will wore out the Spaniard's pride, and after a fruitless delay, the King and Cortes ratified the treaty in its original shape with the important addition of an explicit annulment of the land grants. 
it was again sent in to the senate and in spite of the continued systematic and laborious effort of mr clay and his partisans to make it unpopular it was ratified by a handsome majority there being against it only four votes brown of louisiana who married a sister of clay's wife richard m johnson of kentucky against his own better judgment from mere political subserviency to clay williams of tennessee from party impulses connected with hatred of general jackson and trimble of ohio from some maggot of the brain two years had elapsed since the former ratification and no little patience had been required to await so long the final achievement of a success so ardently longed for once apparently gained and anon so cruelly thwarted but the triumph was rather enhanced than diminished by all this difficulty and delay a long and checkered history wherein appeared infinite labor many a severe trial of temper and hard test moral courage bitter disappointment ignoble artifices of opponents ungenerous opposition growing out of unworthy personal motives at home was now at last closed by a chapter which appeared only the more gratifying by contrast with what had gone before mr adams recorded with less exultation than might have been pardonable the utter discomfiture of all the calculators of my downfall by the spanish negotiation and reflected cheerfully that he had been left with credit rather augmented than impaired by the result credit not in excess of his deserts many years afterwards in changed circumstances an outcry was raised against the agreement which was arrived at concerning the southwestern boundary of louisiana most unjustly it was declared that mr adams had sacrificed a portion of the territory of the united states but political motives were too plainly to be discerned in these tardy criticisms and though general jackson saw fit for personal reasons to animadvert severely upon the clause establishing this boundary line yet there was abundant evidence to show not only that he like almost everyone else had been greatly pleased with it at the time but even that he had then upon consultation expressed a deliberate and special approval the same day february twenty second eighteen twenty one closed says mr adams two of the most memorable transactions of my life that he should speak thus of the exchange of ratifications of the spanish treaty is natural but the other so memorable transaction may not appear of equal magnitude it was the sending in to congress of his report upon weights and measures this was one of those vast labors involving tenfold more toil than all the negotiations with honest and vivus but bringing no proportionate fame however well it might be performed the subject was one which had occupied for the last sixty years many of the ablest men in europe and to which all the power and all the philosophical and mathematical learning and ingenuity of france and great britain had during that period been incessantly directed it was fairly enough described as a fearful and oppressive task upon its dry and uncongenial difficulties mr adams had been employed with his wonted industry for upward of four years he now spoke of the result modestly as a hurried and imperfect work but others who have had to deal with the subject have found this report a solid and magnificent monument of research and reflection which has not even yet been superseded by later treatises mr adams was honest in labor as in everything and was never careless at points where inaccuracy or lack of thoroughness might be expected to escape to detection 
Hence his success in a task upon which it is difficult to imagine other statesmen of that day, Clay, Webster, or Calhoun, for example, so much as making an effort. The topic is not one concerning which readers would tolerate much lingering. Suffice it then to say that the document illustrated the ability and the character of the man, and so with this brief mention to dismiss in a paragraph an achievement which, had it been accomplished in any more showy department, would alone have rendered Mr. Adams famous. It is highly gratifying now to look back upon the high spirit and independent temper uniformly displayed by Mr. Adams abroad and at home in all dealings with foreign powers. Never in any instance did he display the least tinge of that rodomontade and boastful extravagance which have given an underbred air to so many of our diplomats, and which inevitably caused the basis for such self-laudation to appear of dubious sufficiency. But he had the happy gift of a native pride which enabled him to support in the most effective manner the dignity of the people for whom he spoke. For example, in treaties between the United States and European powers, the latter were for a time wont to name themselves first throughout the instruments contrary to the custom of alternation practiced in treaties between themselves. With some difficulty, partly interposed, it must be confessed, by his own American coadjutors, Mr. Adams succeeded in putting a stop to this usage. It was a matter of insignificant detail, in one point of view, but in diplomacy insignificant details often symbolize important facts, and there is no question that this habit had been construed as a tacit but intentional arrogance of superiority on the part of the Europeans. For a long period after the birth of the country there was a strong tendency not yet so eradicated as to be altogether undiscoverable, on the part of American statesmen, to keep one eye turned covertly askance upon the transatlantic courts, and to consider, not without a certain anxious deference, what appearance the new United States might be presenting to the critical eyes of foreign countries and diplomats. Mr. Adams was never guilty of such indirect admissions of an inferiority, which apparently he never felt. In the matter of the acquisition of Florida, Crawford suggests that England and France regarded the people of the United States as ambitious and encroaching, wherefore he advised a moderate policy in order to remove this impression. Mr. Adams, on the other side, declared that he was not in favor of giving ourselves any concern whatever about the opinions of any foreign power. If the world do not hold us for Romans, he said, they will take us for Jews, and of the two vices, I would rather be charged with that which has greatness mingled in its composition. His views were broad and grand. He was quite ready to have the world become familiarized with the idea of considering our proper dominion to be the continent of North America. This extension he declared to be a law of nature. To suppose that Spain and England could, through the long lapse of time, retain their possessions on this side of the Atlantic seemed to him a physical, moral, and political absurdity. The doctrine, which has been christened with the name of President Monroe, seems likely to win for him the permanent glory of having originated the wise policy which that familiar phrase now signifies. It might, however, be shown that by right of true paternity the bantling should have borne a different patronymic. Not only is the Monroe doctrine, as that phrase is customarily construed in our day, much more comprehensive than the simple theory first expressed by Monroe and now included in the modern doctrine as a part of the whole. 
but a principle more fully identical with the imperial one of today had been conceived and shaped by mr adams before the delivery of monroe's famous message as has just been remarked he looked forward to the possession of the whole north american continent by the united states as a sure destiny and for his own part whenever opportunity offered he was never backward to promote this glorious ultimate consummation he was in favor of the acquisition of louisiana whatever fault he might find with the scheme of mr jefferson for making it a state he was ready in eighteen fifteen to ask the british plenipotentiaries to cede canada simply as a matter of common sense and mutual convenience and as the comfortable result of a war in which the united states had been worsted he never labored harder than in negotiating for the floridas and in pushing our western boundaries to the pacific in april eighteen twenty three he wrote to the american minister at madrid the significant remark it is scarcely possible to resist the conviction that the annexation of cuba to our federal republic will be indispensable to the continuance and integrity of the union encroachments never seemed distasteful to him and he was always forward to stretch a point in order to advocate or defend a seizure of disputed north american territory as in the cases of amelia island pensacola and galveston when discussion arose with russia concerning her possession on the northwest coast of this continent mr adams audaciously told the russian minister baron tyle july seventeenth eighteen twenty three that we should contest the rights of russia to any territorial establishment on this continent and that we should assume distinctly the principle that the american continents are no longer subjects for any new european colonial establishments this says mr charles francis adams in a footnote to the passage in the diary is the first hint of the policy so well known afterwards as the monroe doctrine nearly five months later referring to the same matter in his message to congress december second eighteen twenty three president monroe said the occasion has been judged proper for asserting as a principle in which the rights and interests of the united states are involved that the american continents by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintain are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any european powers it will be observed that both mr adams and president monroe used the phrase continents including thereby south as well as north america a momentous question was imminent which fortunately never called for a determination by action, but which in this latter part of 1823 threatened to do so at any moment. Cautious and moderate as the United States had been, under Mr. Adams' guidance, in recognizing the freedom and autonomy of the South American states, yet in time the recognition was made of one after another, and the emancipation of South America had come, while Mr. Adams was yet secretary, to be regarded as an established fact. But now, in 1823 through 24, came mutterings from across the Atlantic indicating a strong probability that the members of the Holy Alliance would interfere in behalf of monarchical and anti-revolutionary principles, and would assist in the resubjugation of the successful insurgents. That each one of the powers who should contribute to this huge crusade would expect and receive territorial reward could not be doubted. Mr. Adams, in unison with most of his countrymen, contemplated with profound distrust and repulsion the possibility of such a European inroad. Stimulated by the prospect of so unwelcome neighbors, he prepared some dispatches, drawn to correspond exactly with the sentiments of Mr. Monroe's message, in which he appears to have taken a very high and defiant position. 
These documents, coming before the Cabinet for consideration, caused some flutter among his associates. In the possible event of the Holy Alliance actually intermeddling with South American affairs, it was said, the principles enunciated by the Secretary of State would involve this country in a war with a very formidable confederation. Mr. Adams acknowledged this, but courageously declared that in such a crisis he felt quite ready to take even this spirited stand. His audacious spirit went far in advance of the cautious temper of the Monroe administration. Possibly it went too far in advance of the dictates of a wise prudence, though fortunately the course of events never brought this question to trial. And it is at least gratifying to contemplate such a manifestation of daring temper. But though so bold and independent, Mr. Adams was not habitually reckless nor prone to excite animosity by needless arrogance in action or extravagance in principle. In any less perilous extremity than was presented by this menaced intrusion of combined Europe, he followed rigidly the wise rule of non-interference. For many years before this stage was reached, he had been holding in difficult check the enthusiasts who, under the lead of Mr. Clay, would have embroiled us with Spain and Portugal. Once he was made the recipient of a very amusing proposition from the Portuguese minister that the United States and Portugal, as the two great powers of the Western Hemisphere, should concert together a grand American system. The drollery of this notion was of a kind that Mr. Adams could appreciate, though to most manifestations of humor he was utterly impervious. But after giving vent to some contemptuous merriment, he adds with a just and serious pride, as to an American system, we have it. We constitute the whole of it. There is no community of interests or of principles between North and South America. This sound doctrine was put forth in 1820. It was only modified in the manner that we have seen during a brief period in 1823 in the face of the alarming vision not only of Spain and Portugal restored to authority, but of Russia in possession of California and more France in possession of Mexico, and perhaps Great Britain becoming mistress of Cuba. So far as European affairs were concerned, Mr. Adams always and consistently refused to become entangled in them, even in the slightest and most indirect manner. When the cause of Greek liberty aroused the usual throng of noisy advocates for active interference, he contented himself with expressions of cordial sympathy, accompanied by perfectly distinct and explicit statements that under no circumstances could any aid in the way of money or auxiliary forces be expected from this country. Neutrals we were and would remain in any and all European quarrels. When Stratford Canning urged, with the uttermost measure of persistence of which even he was capable, that for the suppression of the slave trade some such arrangement might be made as that of mixed tribunals for the trial of slave-trading vessels, and alleged that diverse European powers were uniting for this purpose, Mr. Adams suggested, as an insuperable obstacle, the general extra-European policy of the United States, a policy which they had always pursued as best suited to their own interests, and best adapted to harmonize with those of Europe. This policy had also been that of Europe, which had never considered the United States as belonging to her system. It was best for both parties that they should continue to do so. In any European combination, said Mr. Adams, in which the United States should become a member, she must soon become an important power, and must always be, in many respects, an uncongenial one. It was best that she should keep wholly out of European politics, even of such leagues as the one for the suppression of the slave trade. He added that he did not wish his language to be construed as importing 
an unsocial or sulky spirit on the part of the United States, for no such temper existed. It had simply been the policy of Europe to consider this country as standing aloof from all European federations, and in this treatment we had acquiesced, because it fell in with our own policy. In a word, Mr. Adams, by his language and actions, established and developed precisely that doctrine which has since been adopted by this country under the doubly incorrect name of the Monroe Doctrine, a name doubly incorrect because even the real Monroe Doctrine was not an original idea of Mr. Monroe, and because the doctrine which now goes by that name is not identical with the doctrine which Monroe did once declare. Mr. Adams' principle was simply that the United States would take no part whatsoever in foreign politics not even in those of South America, save in the extreme event, eliminated from other things possible in this generation, of such an interference as was contemplated by the Holy Alliance, and that, upon the other hand, she would permit no European power to gain any new foothold upon this continent. Time and experience have not enabled us to improve upon the principles which Mr. Adams worked out for us. Mr. Adams had some pretty stormy times with Mr. Stratford Canning, the same gentleman who in his later life is familiar to the readers of Kingslake's History of the Crimean War as Lord Stratford de Redcliffe, or Elchi. That minister's overbearing and dictatorial deportment was afterward not out of place when he was representing the protecting power of Great Britain in the court of the sick man. But when he began to display his arrogance in the face of Mr. Adams, he found that he was bearding one who was at least his equal in pride and temper. The naive surprise which he manifested on making this discovery is very amusing, and the accounts of the interviews between the two are among the most pleasing episodes in the history of our foreign relations. Nor are they less interesting as a sort of confidential peep at the asperities of diplomacy. It appears that besides the composed and formal dignity of phrase which alone the public knows in published state papers and official correspondence, there is also an official language of wrath and retort not at all artificial or stilted, but quite homelike, and human in its sound. One subject much discussed between Mr. Adams and Mr. Canning related to the English propositions for joint efforts to suppress the slave trade. Great Britain had engaged with much vigor, and certainly with an admirable humanity in this cause. Her scheme was that each power should keep armed cruisers on the coast of Africa, that the warships of either nation might search the merchant vessels of the other, and that mixed courts of joint commissioners should try all cases of capture. This plan had been urged upon the several European nations, but with imperfect success. Portugal, Spain, and the Netherlands had assented to it. Russia, France, Austria, and Prussia had rejected it. Mr. Adams' notion was that the ministry were, in their secret hearts, rather lukewarm in the business, but that they were not so pressed by the party of the saints in Parliament that they were obliged to make a parade of zeal. Whether this suspicion was correct or not, it is certain that Mr. Stratford Canning was very persistent in the presentation of his demands, and could not be persuaded to take no for an answer. Had it been possible to give any more favorable reply, no one in the United States in that day would have been better pleased than Mr. Adams to do so. But the obstacles were insuperable. Besides the undesirability of departing from the extra-European policy, the mixed courts would have been unconstitutional and could not have been established even by an act of Congress while the claims advanced by Great Britain to search our ships for English-born seamen in time of war utterly precluded the possibility of admitting any rights of search whatsoever upon her part, even in time of peace, for any purpose or in any shape. In vain did the Englishman reiterate his appeal. 
Mr. Adams as often explained that the insistence of England upon her outrageous claim had rendered the United States so sensitive upon the entire subject of search that no description of right of that kind could ever be tolerated. All concession of principle, he said, tended to encourage encroachment, and if naval officers were once habituated to search the vessels of other nations in time of peace for one thing, they would be still more encouraged to practice it for another thing in time of war. The only way for Great Britain to achieve her purpose would be to bind herself by an article as strong and explicit as language can make it, never again in time of war to take a man from an American vessel. This, of course, was an inadmissible proposition, and so Mr. Stratford Canning's incessant urgency produced no substantial results. This discussion, however, was generally harmonious. Only once in its earlier stages, Mr. Adams notes a remark of Mr. Canning, repeated for the second time, and not altogether gratifying. He said, writes Mr. Adams, that he should always receive any observations that I may make to him with a just deference to my advance of years over him. This is one of those equivocal compliments, which, according to Stern, a Frenchman always returns with a bow. It was when they got upon the matter of the American settlement at the mouth of the Columbia River that the two struck fire. Possession of this disputed spot had been taken by the Americans, but was broken up by the British during the War of 1812. After the declaration of peace upon the status antebellum, a British government vessel had been dispatched upon the special errand of making formal return of the port to the Americans. In January 1821, Certain remarks made in debate in the House of Representatives, followed soon afterwards by publication in the National Intelligencer of a paper signed by Senator Eaton, led Mr. Canning to think that the government entertained the design of establishing a substantial settlement at the mouth of the river. On January 26th, he called upon Mr. Adams and inquired the intentions of the administration in regard to this. Mr. Adams replied that an increase of the present settlement was not improbable, Thereupon, Mr. Canning dropped the air of easy familiarity, which had previously marked the intercourse between the two, and, assuming a tone more peremptory than Mr. Adams was disposed to endure, expressed his great surprise. Mr. Adams, with a corresponding change of tone, expressed equal surprise both at the form and substance of his address. Mr. Canning said that he conceived such a settlement would be a direct violation of the article of the Convention of 20th October, 1818. Mr. Adams took down a volume, read the article, and said, Now, sir, if you have any charge to make against the American government for a violation of this article, will you please to make the communication in writing? Mr. Canning retorted, with great vehemence, And do you suppose, sir, that I am to be dictated to, as to the manner in which I may think proper to communicate with the American government? I answered, No, sir, we know very well what are the privileges of foreign ministers, and mean to respect them but you will give us leave to determine what communications we will receive and how we will receive them, and you may be assured that we are as little disposed to submit to dictation as to exercise it. He then, in a louder and more passionate tone of voice, said, And am I to understand that I am to be refused henceforth any conference with you upon the subject of my mission? Not at all, sir, said I. My request is that if you have anything further to say to me upon this subject, you would say it in writing and my motive is to avoid what, both from the nature of the subject and from the manner in which you have thought proper to open it, I foresee will tend only to mutual irritation, and not to an amicable arrangement. With some abatement of tone, but in the same peremptory manner, he said, 
am I to understand that you refuse any further conference with me on this subject? I said, no, but you will understand that I am not pleased either with the grounds upon which you have sought this conference, nor with the questions which you have seen fit to put to me. Mr. Adams then proceeded to expose the impropriety of a foreign minister demanding from the administration an explanation of words uttered in debate in Congress, and also said that he supposed that the British had no claim to the territory in question. Mr. Canning rejoined and referred to the sending out of the American ships at the War of Ontario in 1817 without any notice to the British minister footnote, then Mr. Bagot, and footnote, at Washington, speaking in a very emphatic manner and as if there had been an intended secret expedition which had been detected only by the vigilance and penetration of the british minister i answered why mr bagot did say something to me about it but i certainly did not think him serious and we had a good-humored laughing conversation on the occasion canning with great vehemence you may rely upon it sir that it was no laughing matter to him for i have seen his report to his government and know what his feelings concerning it were i replied this is the first intimation i have ever received that mr bagot took the slightest offence at what then passed between us and you will give me leave to say that when he left this country here i was going to add that the last words he said to me were words of thanks for the invariable urbanity and liberality of my conduct and the personal kindness which he had uniformly received from me but i could not finish the sentence mr canning in a paroxysm of extreme irritation broke out i stop you there I will not endure a misrepresentation of what I say. I never said that Mr. Bagot took offense at anything that had passed between him and you, and nothing that I said imported any such thing. Then, added in the same passionate manner, I am treated like a schoolboy. I then resumed, Mr. Canning, I have a distinct recollection of the substance of the short conversation between Mr. Bagot and me at that time, and it was this. No doubt, sir, said Canning, interrupting me again. No doubt, sir, Mr. Bagot answered you, like a man of good breeding and good humor. End of chapter 2b. Recording by Jesse Crisp Sears in Pittsburgh, North Carolina.